Battleline Podcast, what's going on, everyone? Have a great episode lined up for you on this week's show. Toby Harnden, author of First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. You're not going to want to miss that. And uh, there's also some news to get into in the special operations community. And when there are major stories like there are this week, we do our best to get into them. Uh, but before we do, this episode is sponsored by Skillshare. Really excited to have Skillshare on board with us. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of inspiring classes for curious people. Uh, for myself, I'm looking to learn more about video editing, video production, and so I could be in a league with these these guys like Truthseeker, right, who we've had on the show, who does a great podcast, but also is phenomenal with the video production and video editing, and he's in high demand for it. And I, I think uh, there's just a lot of people looking to learn that type of stuff. Um, you know, if you're looking to learn audio and, and what I do, this is a great, great resource for you to have. And and also, if you're at a job that, that you feel is not fulfilling your purpose and you're not passionate about, and in the worst case, if you hate going to work every day and there is something that you have passion for, you could really step your game up if you go on Skillshare. It's going to take you to the next level and, and really be a game changer. Check out their classes with a special two-month premium membership trial for the first 1,000 who sign up through our website, which I'm going to give to you. Uh, I'm telling you right now, this is your calling, possibly, if you're looking to do something new, career change. So go there now. It's battlelinepodcast.com slash Skillshare. No promo code needed, but a special two-month premium membership trial for the first 1,000 who sign up. So get on that quickly. Battlelinepodcast.com slash Skillshare. Let's go. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. <laughs> You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The switch is on Battle Line Podcast. Ian Scotto here. Uh, so I woke up this morning, and Chris was supposed to be on this episode with Toby Harnden, uh, but I, he reached out to me, and unfortunately, he woke up, or at least had last night, I think, and it's still lingering, a, uh, a fever, really feeling under the weather. We don't know what it is as of right now, but needless to say, it's just me here with you. So uh, stay stay locked in, though, because we have a great show. Uh, just myself. I I know it's been a little bit since Chris has been on. 
Uh, this wasn't the way we planned this particular episode, but uh, I would hope he will be back next week. What I really wanted to hear from him on, possibly, was have you guys heard uh, Hillary Clinton uh, bawling and giving her uh, acceptance speech had she have won the presidency? Uh, I'll play it for you right here. I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her, taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me. You will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the president of the United States. All right, hopefully you guys have not completely tuned out after that because it's so cringe. Uh, but it, what it really made me feel, and I'm sure Chris would have more emotion about this, but it's just compare that to the lack of emotion, the lack of empathy during the Benghazi hearings and you know the what difference does it make and all those sound clips to how emotional she gets over not winning the presidency. It's uh, I, I think I speak for like this whole audience that we'd just like to see her go away for good. Um, you know, and, and I don't mean that I mean, go away in, in the world of politics and in the world of publicity and, and all of that. Uh, she's really not someone we want to hear from. And, and when you hear just the, the egomaniacal response to, to reading that whole thing and, and getting emotional over it. Yeah. I don't have anything else to say about it. Um, because it, it, it definitely genuinely bothers me that she doesn't have any empathy for for the, those guys like Glenn Doherty and uh, and Ty Woods and but when it comes to her losing the presidency to Trump it's this huge emotional response so I'm sure you guys have uh, seen it most of you let us know uh, what you thought in the comments or on Instagram or of course you could email us battlelinepodcast at gmail.com now in other news Navy SEAL Team 8 Commander Brian Bourgeois has passed away. He died during a training event, and uh, yeah, very unfortunate news in that realm. To give you a little bit of the backstory here, and this is from uh, Navy Times, the Navy SEAL who died Tuesday after being injured in a fast rope training event last week has been identified as the commanding officer of SEAL Team 8 Commander Brian Bourgeois. Uh, Brian, and I'm just going to make sure I'm getting the name right here because I wrote it down. Brian Bourgeois, okay? Uh, Navy SEAL, Navy Special Warfare Command has released few other details so far on what happened, but Bourgeois, 43, was injured during the training evolution Saturday in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He was taken to Norfolk Centara General Hospital following the accident and died there. Uh, and this is a quote from Captain Donald Weatherby. An incident like this weighs heavily on all of us. Uh, Brian was as tough as they come, an outstanding leader and a committed father, husband, and friend. This is a great loss to everyone who knew him. He will be greatly missed. Weatherby said that the command is providing support to Bourgeois' family and fellow unit members. Now, I posted this on Facebook and uh, to Battle Line Podcast's Facebook, and one of our listeners, longtime listeners, uh, Pamela Whip, let me know that there is a foundation benefiting the family, and that's all in all the time foundation. Uh, so I'll, I'll post a link to that if you if you'd like to donate and uh, 
says, please use the drop down menu to choose an amount. Um, but they also wrote some more about him on there. So I'm getting this from the all in all the time foundation website through the all in all the time foundation, immediate responses provided to the needs of the Naval special warfare community. The needs are many. The needs are great. AIATT through our tragedy assistance program can alleviate some of the burdens not covered under the larger benevolent programs that arise months, even years after tragedy occurs. Commander Brian Bourgeois was the commanding officer of SEAL Team 8 and lost his life after a training accident this past weekend. Commander Bourgeois is a native of Lake Charles, Louisiana, and has served for over 20 years. Brian entered into command of SEAL Team 8 after serving as the NSWG-2 operations officer. Prior to his return to NSWG-2, he served at the USS OCOM in the J-8 Directorate. His tour included time in the Maritime and Special Programs Assessments, then finished as the executive officer to the J-8 Director. Before his joint tour at SOCOM, he deployed twice as a troop commander to the continent of Africa in support of Operation Odyssey Dawn and Enduring Freedom. Then again as an executive officer to lead the transition from SOCCEHOA to SOCFWDEA, his platoon command time at SEAL Team 4 included multiple deployments against the counter-Iranian target set in Iraq. From 2002 to 2004, Brian served aboard the USS Blackhawk MHC-58 as a surface warfare officer. He is a 2001 graduate of the United States Naval Academy and earned a master's in defense analysis from the Naval Postgraduate School. Brian earned the Pat Tillman Leadership Award while at NPS. Other military awards include a Bronze Star with V. Defense Meritorious Service Medal with an Oak Leaf Cluster, Joint Commendation Medal, Navy Commendation Medal 2, two of those, and the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, the Combat Action Ribbon, and a NATO Medal. He has been married to Megan Catherine Bourgeois for 20 years. Together they have five children, Barrett, who is 18, Allie, 16, Piper, 13, Cowan, uh, 11, Jonathan, 6, and two dogs, Molly and Dudley. So very unfortunate news out of the Navy SEAL community, and uh, we're, we're praying for the best for their family. And once again, if you'd like to donate, it's the All In, All The Time Foundation. Also, we are learning that finally, Sergeant First Class Alan Cash will be awarded the posthumous Medal of Honor, and uh, not just him. Uh, as well as Master Sergeant Earl Plumley and Sergeant First Class Christopher Salise. So uh, as a friend of, I, I would say friend of the show, but she hasn't been on yet and we really should get her on, Lee Tuttle, a wife of a service member who really has raised awareness about some of the travesties going on with military housing. Uh, I, I would love to have her on to speak about because of the fact that uh, these private companies are putting military families in uh, houses that have major problems with uh, asbestos and that type of thing. And uh, it, it's it's creating asthma, not just for service members, but for their young children and that type of thing. And she really blew the whistle on this and uh, not enough is being done. But as she said, um, because she was familiar with one of these guys, um, it's not just Alan Cash and two other guys, because I know Alan Cash was written about, of course, in the Patriots' Creed and Chris's book, but all of these guys were true heroes. So once again, remember all three names, Sergeant First Class Alan Cash 
and Master Sergeant Earl Plumley, as well as Sergeant First Class Christopher Solis. Uh, we salute you guys, and I'm looking forward to seeing their families get the respect and the honor that, that they truly deserve. That said, we have Toby Harnden coming right up, so uh, really excited to have him. We've been looking to get Toby on for a while, and I was glad that we finally set this up. Uh, before we get into that, Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition that is designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. Go to the dealer locator on their website if you're looking to purchase Fort Scott ammo anywhere by you, and you're going to find somewhere when you type in your zip code. For me, it's a South Shore Sportsman in Merrick. They supply it there. And every now and again, they do have bulk ammo, so sign up for their mailing list, and if you use our promo code, you'll get a huge discount on that, and you'll also get a discount on their merch. Great hats, the Tactic Squawk shirt, uh, definitely a cool shirt to go to the gym in, and uh, any other any other gun bros, I say, I'll say, uh, will probably compliment you. So check them out, guys. FortScottMunitions.com. Use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the BattleLine podcast. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BattleLine Tactical, and the BattleLine podcast. F-O-R-T-S-C-O-T-T-M-U-N-I-T-I-O-N-S.com. Link is right there in the description. Check them out and uh, find somewhere by you that is selling Fort Scott Munitions right there on the website. Love those guys. FortScottMunitions.com. And of course, guys, Bubs Naturals, the namesake, uh, Glenn Bub Doherty for the brand uh, Navy Seal. And you guys know his story. If you don't know the whole story, check out the episode with Sean Lake where we really talk more in depth about Glenn Bub Doherty and why Sean Lake started this company. Uh, in remembrance of him and, and truly something that, that he would love and that he would be taking as a as a fitness enthusiast. They're the only product on the market really doing what they do in terms of a collagen protein that's not only non-GMO, grass-fed, gluten-free, but also single ingredient, paleo-friendly and keto-friendly. Single source supply, which is huge. They're just getting it from one source. There's no type of blending and with these grass-fed cows, you know that what you're putting in their body is good because you're going to be putting that in your body as well. It's important. It's the same way you're, you're paying a premium for a grass-fed steak or grass-fed butter rather than just eating whatever garbage is out there. Um, you're getting more omega-3s from that, which you can learn a lot about when you're eating um, grass-fed beef. Just like when you're taking grass-fed collagen protein as a supplement, you're getting great benefits from that. So also... Uh, 100% safe for sports if you're getting drug tested, and a 2019 World Series champs winner as the brand, Amazon Launchpad brand, 
And they, of course, give 10% to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. What I've been using it for lately, I love putting the uh, collagen protein into a hot chocolate during these colder months post-workout. Feels great, has your joints feeling good, and your muscle recovery on point. BubsNaturals.com. Promo code BATTLELINE, you're going to get 20% off. We are getting such awesome feedback from listeners who have checked them out. So join them and do the same. BubsNaturals.com, promo code BATTLELINE. So joining us, or joining me, I should say, for the first time on BATTLELINE podcast with Chris out this episode is Toby Harnden, author of First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11, which I have right here, uh, just out. Pretty pretty recently, about a month ago, right, or two months ago? Yeah, uh, September 7th, I think, was the formal publication date. Awesome. Yeah, and, and to give some background on Toby, beyond just being a journalist, being an author of several books at this point, Royal Navy officer, retired as a lieutenant, so he's a veteran himself. Uh, we could definitely get into the arrest in Zimbabwe. That's an interesting <laughs> story, um, as well as other pieces that you've written. But uh, yeah, it's great to have you on. Thanks very much, Ian. Great to be here. And sorry that Chris is out, but, you know, I hope it isn't COVID. I hope it's not too serious. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. But uh, you and I have been talking about uh, doing this for a little bit, so I'm glad that it's finally happening. Um, of course, we'll get into the book. We'll get into Afghanistan and all that. But sure. I think people would be interested to know about your time in the Royal Navy, uh, enlisting and, and how things went from there and what you saw and what you did. Sure. So, um, so I'm fourth generation military. So my father was in the Navy. Uh, his father was in the army. Um, so my grandfather uh, joined the army. I think his first rank was boy in the South Wales borderers. Um, he joined in the 1920s uh, and served all the way through World War II. And so I grew up kind of um, hearing his war stories and looking at his medals and various mementos from sort of battlefields in North Africa and India. Um, and then his father was also uh, army stretching back to uh, the 1880s in uh, in uh, Egypt and the Sudan. So I guess it was just part of my sort of family uh, history. And actually, of my father's brothers, one was uh, was in the Marines and then in the army, and another the another brother, his other brother, was in the army. So I guess it's just one of those sort of family things. And I grew up uh, mostly in Manchester. Uh, the northwest of England, kind of a grim industrial city far away from the sea. And I just wanted to get out. You know, I remember sort of at the age of, you know, 14, 15, just thinking, I just want to get out of it. I want to get as far away from this place as possible and never return. And so the Navy seemed um, a good way to do that. And so I was first doing my interviews for the Navy in 1982. Well, I was 16 years old, um, and that was the year of the Falklands War. And so it was very real. I mean, there were ships being sunk. There were two destroyers sunk and two frigates sunk. And I remember picking up the Manchester Evening News and that the sort of banner headline was Coventry sunk. And that was HMS Coventry, a Type 42 destroyer. And so, yeah, it really brought it home to me. But in a way, that's kind of what I wanted. You know, I wanted the war and the combat and the sharp end. You know, I was never one of these people who's just like, oh, you know, I just want to, you know, wear the uniform and get some money for my education. Um, and strangely enough, one of the early ships I joined, um, so I joined the Navy in 85, age 18, turned 19 uh, during my first week of basic training, which wasn't a particularly 
happy birthday, you know, like mm-hmm. basic training. Um, but one of the first uh, ships I was on board was uh, HMS Manchester, another Type 42 destroyer. And quite a few of the guys from HMS Coventry had transferred to HMS Manchester after their ship had been sunk, you know. So this was for, you know, a young guy in the Navy. This was sort of real stuff. Um, but I then got, I got a sponsorship uh, through uh, the Navy to go through college. So I went to Oxford to study history for three years, um, basically as a civilian. But, you know, I had a naval rank and I had naval pay. And in the vacations, I would go off on ships and, you know, I joined a ship, um, actually HMS Manchester in Hong Kong. Um, and we went all around Australia. So it was, you know, it was pretty good times. Um, and then once I graduated from college, uh, I was back in full time. And, but the problem with it was, it was after the Falklands, there was the Gulf War in 91. I was based in Scotland, tried very hard to get involved. They weren't having any of it. They were like, you stay where you are. And, you know, the Cold War was over. And so I traveled around lots to lots of nice places. You know, went to Australia twice. I twice joined ships in the Far East, went to the Caribbean, around the States, uh, sort of, you know, Scandinavia, uh, Spain, Portugal. You know, it was, you know, it was great fun, um, but it just didn't feel that real. You know, we were patrolling, um, you know, the northern flank of NATO after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I was thought, what's this for? And so... Uh, you know, I had this sort of thirst for adventure and it seemed to me that I was going to be able to satisfy that thirst more by being outside the Navy than than within it. I was also conscious that, you know, when you're a junior officer, you can kind of work the system and get what you want because there's lots of sort of flexibility in there. But the, the, the more senior you get, the, the fewer options you have. And, you know... I think I had a little bit of a tendency to sort of buck the system anyway. So I thought, well, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead, you know, before that becomes a problem. Um, and so I just sort of took the leap, you know, I, so I, t- you know, I served a total of almost 10 years in the Navy. And, and I, so I thought, well, you know, I'm 28 and sort of young enough to kind of pretty much start at the bottom in journalism. And so that's what I did. There was a kind of a crossover period where I was kind of moonlighting as a journalist while I was still in the Navy, which was a little bit uncomfortable. Um, did, did you have to use uh, like pen name or something like that? If Were you writing about stuff that could be uh, in conflict? Uh, well, it's kind of funny. I mean, I was writing for, a, I can say this now because it's, you know, whatever, whatever it is, it's more yeah, it's like, what are you going to arrest me now? <laughs> it's more than 25 <laughs> I've already years. already been arrested. <laughs> right, right. It's 25 years ago. But, you know, I was working for the Telegraph uh, Diary, which was um, no bylines. But, you know, I was giving them, I was, you know, I was working, actually, I was working for nothing. But I got paid when I brought a story in. So that was a pretty big incentive to bring a story. And I was bringing in a lot of stories. And they were, you know, you know, certainly nothing that would have harmed national security, but kind of silly stuff that was sort of, often a little bit embarrassing. Prince Andrew's um, ship running aground, you know, the the first Sea Lord being stranded uh, because some junior officer had failed to read the time tide tables properly, you know, kind of stuff like that. Um, and so I was, you know, I was writing those stories. And then it's funny, I had a... So, I, you know, I was sort of seen as somebody who 
had some journalistic talents. And so they said, you, you can do a trial in the newsroom. Uh, and this was August 1994. I didn't officially retire until October 94. And so uh, I went to my then boss, who was a commander, really nice guy, older guy who was retiring. He was going to become a math teacher. <laughs> so he didn't really care. And I said, listen, sir, I've got this um, opportunity. And he said, you know, great, go for it. He said, you, he said, you probably shouldn't have any bylines, you know, because, you, you know, you're still serving. So I said, yeah, okay, well, that's fine, sir. And and then when I got there, like on day one, you know, I, I sort of, I didn't misrepresent myself, but I kind of led them to believe that I had more experience than I did. I mean, I because I... Which is, which is, I feel like, normal always with a new job, right? I mean... You you want to make the best impression. You're gonna you're gonna inflate things a little bit. I think everybody's done that at some point. Yeah. So so I had done I think two or three days working for the Western Morning News, which was a regional paper in Plymouth because I I was based in Plymouth at that point. I'd been kind of sent in exile, you know, for my final year in the Navy because I was leaving. And um, and so the person who'd given me. The, the, the overall uh, news editor, home news editor, was was on vacation that week, and she knew that I had no, almost no experience. So the so her deputy was there, and then he was he said to me, "So who are you?" Like they weren't expecting me, and I said, uh, "Oh, you know, this is Toby Harnden. You know, uh, 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 I've been working for the Western Morning News." And he's like, "Okay, good. You know, do this story." And so he obviously imagined I spent like eighteen months at a regional newspaper, and and anyway, I did the story. And then he, and then somebody said, you know, uh, do you want a byline or you know? Because sometimes people didn't have bylines or they had pen names because they were working for other papers and they were kind of moonlighting. And and at, at that point, it was just like a split second decision. I was kind of like, well, yeah, I'll have a byline. <laughs> so and so I had a whole month's worth of bylines while I was still in the navy, and I wasn't writing about the navy. And and when I got back, my boss just. He just kind of shrugged, and it was definitely the right thing to do because you know your name and your byline is important when you're trying to break into journalism. So, wait, was there a different name you went by? No, I just used my name. Oh, okay, it's got you. Okay, you know, I, I thought I was, you know the old. Well, I was a little confused on that. If you did end up using your name, okay, got no, it. No, I just used because I just you know the old thing of you know forgiveness uh, rather than permission. And yeah, yeah. At that point, I'm thinking like, listen, the Navy's. I'm I'm leaving. And I need to, you know, this is a big opportunity. I'm working for a national newspaper. Am I going to turn down bylines? No, I'm not going to do it. And, okay, if I get into some trouble, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it. Deal with it. What can they do? Fire me? I'm leaving anyway. You know, speaking of which, uh, before we get into the book, talking about getting into trouble, I do want to hear the whole story because uh, I have seen it. You know, of you being arrested in Zimbabwe in, Zimbabwe in 2005 yeah. for 14 days for what they call practicing journalism without accreditation which means which like really stokes your imagination to how much different the uk is how much different the us is in that we really have free reign yeah i mean yeah i mean here you don't need accreditation to be a journalist you don't even need a, i mean you get you have i guess you get a card to go into the capital and stuff like that but um you know there's a, there's a first amendment and if if you want to write something and post on the internet or, or whatever you can do it. But but Robert Mugabe's regime had this um, this very repressive law, which is called IPA. It was access to 
It was Access to Information and the Prevention of Privacy Act. And it basically said you couldn't be a journalist without a government permit. And as a foreign journalist, you had to, so you had to apply to this like, you know, repressive, murderous regime um, that was very, very uh, hated the West and ha- particularly because of the colonial past of Rhodesia and everything, hated Britain. Um, and so, you know, it was a fairly standard thing for British journalists at that point to uh, to not apply for permission and just to go in as tourists. And, you know, if we'd applied, we'd either have got rejected, which would have then meant they would have had our names and would have, so if we'd, if we'd have gone in as tourists and then we were sort of more vulnerable, or we'd have had some goon from the Mugabe regime following yeah. us around. We were not going to do that. So, sure. so this, I was working the Sunday Telegraph at this point, um, based in London as the chief foreign correspondent, like flying all over the world, like almost, you know, every week could be, you know, one week I might be in Saudi Arabia, the next week I might be in Thailand. I mean, it was kind of an incredible job. It was exhausting. But um, a photographer and I, um, who became a good friend, uh, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm glad he did, and you'll find out the reason shortly, um, Julian Simmons, and we hadn't worked together before, but we both spent a lot of time in Iraq separately. And so we went out, we went to Zimbabwe uh, to cover the parliamentary elections in 2005. And we went in as tourists, um, and there was a bit of kind of, joking around with the office because we were like, we're here as tourists. We have to, we have to, um, you know, create a proper tourist cover. So we're going on safari, you know, and obviously we're going to put it, put it through our expenses. And so, nice. you know, so the news editor was like, yeah, really? Okay. And um, so we went off and we took lots of photos of hippos and lions and stuff. And, and then a couple of weeks, we've been there, we've been there two weeks and we've done, you know, we've done some good work at, uh, I'd interviewed Morgan Chang- Changarai, I think he was called, who was the um, the movement for democratic change leader, the opposition leader, who was kind of you know regularly beaten up by Mugabe and his thugs. And so we'd done this clandestine interview, and you know we we'd kind of accessed this sort of network of people that help journalists and stuff, and so we felt pretty comfortable. And so on the voting day, we decided. That we were going to go with a cat, we were going to go with an MDC opposition candidate, but we didn't want to just go with a white candidate. So, lots of white farmers um, in Zimbabwe, and they tended to get a lot of coverage in the Western media. Um, and so, we thought, no, 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 we're going to go with a black candidate. So that's going to be more interesting. In, interesting. It's going to be a bit, a bit different. Um, but we were really getting a little bit, um, in hindsight, overconfident because what we didn't realized was that this candidate was she was a woman she was she was going into a zanu pf stronghold which is a mugabe stronghold and obviously one of the benefits of being with uh white candidates when you're white is that you can kind of blend in a bit whereas we were the only white guys for like 40 miles around when we when we went with this mdc candidate into a zanu pf area and so um we were at this polling station, which was a school, and there was just kind of a local ZANU-PF leader who just uh, actually saw Ju- – I'd actually finished doing my interviews and stuff. Uh, he saw Julian taking photos and and sort of grabbed him and was asking who he was. And w- we were trying to talk our way out of it. And 
at a certain point, we weren't getting anywhere. And so Julian and I kind of conferred and we said, right, okay, let's just make a beeline really quickly for the rental car and hope that they're just going to be kind of frozen. They're not, they're not going to know what to do. And if but we don't run, but let's just, let's just get there. And there's a pretty good chance we'll just be able to get into the rental car and drive off. And so we did that <laughs> and, and they immediately grabbed Julian and a couple of minutes later he was in handcuffs. <laughs> and so wow. we we're like, that didn't work. And so, you know, the police came and we were, we were taken to a, uh, a police station and then some like, you know, intelligence guy from the Mugabe regime came to sort of quiz us. And, you know, we were just like, yeah, we're just journalists. Uh, sorry, we're just tourists. You know, here's our photos of lions and hippos. And I'd thrown all my books. So I'd driven to the police station. I'd thrown out all the books and stuff I had and all the kind of journalistic materials apart from my notebooks. I didn't want to throw my notebook out. Um, yeah, this, that was smart thinking, per, you know, preliminary it, it, before you went out there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and we had, we didn't have our laptops with us. So, we, you know, we, we were taking a reasonable number of precautions. So we were in a hotel, which was sort of safe for journalists. They knew, knew who we were, our laptops, and most of our equipment and stuff was there. We had the minimum on us. I did have some books about Zimbabwean politics and stuff, which I just threw out the window of the vehicle. Um, Julian took out his, like, then it was an SD card from his camera, and he put it underneath a blackboard duster in the, in the, in the classroom where we were sort of being held. So we didn't have much on us. Uh, anyway, we got, you know, we were three nights in the police station and we oh, kept wow. on thinking, you know, this, in this real terrible sh- cell, like just horrendous with just yeah. like a hole in the corner uh, for the toilet. And that was it. Damn. And it was really hot and there was like mosquitoes everywhere. And um, and we kept on thinking we were just going to get uh, released and deported, but we didn't. And then on the on the third day, they, um, I forget they whether they took us to a courthouse or anyway they set, took us as prison, and so all of a sudden we were in prison, and um, you know they fingerprinted us and you know did all this stuff, and then it, that was the uh, for me in a way that was the only really well not about really I mean Julian and I had said to each other we're not going to get our heads chopped off here, and so we'd been in Iraq for, for two years like worrying about you know the orange jumpsuit and being beheaded on video and all that and that was just a constant sort of fear and possibility and so yes, we were like with this this being 2005 it's not long after some of those things that oh yeah it was yeah i mean that was daniel oh, pearl and yeah yeah oh yeah and i'd watched all those videos and it was yeah i dreamt about that stuff and it was a very big fear and so we were like it's not going to be that bad um but we went into this prison and i remember there was this the sort of commandant was in full army uniform and he looked like Idi Amin, the, you know, the famous Ugandan leader. Um, he had all these like metal ribbons and in this like sort of palatial office. And he made us sit on the floor. Like we had to sit at his feet, like even though there were these big leather chairs and stuff. And um, at that point we'd been put in prison uniform. So we had these um, like this sort of, uh, green like t- canvas t-shirt and shorts and and then we were just in this prison and you know you just so we've been in the police police cell 
on our own, or I think one night there was a drunk in there or somebody, but it was pretty much us. But then all of a sudden we were in a cell, we were in this huge prison and the cell had more than a hundred people in it. And so we are like, you know, what's, what's this going to be like? Are we going to get raped? Are we going to get beaten up? Uh, you know, and it, it was sort of okay. I mean, they had a structure, they had a, like a commanding officer. I mean, it was a bit like the IRA and loyalist paramilitary uh, prisons in Northern Ireland, which I sort of visited and stuff where there was, a, there was, the prisoners were organizing this military structure. So there's a commanding officer and his like lieutenants and we were assigned people. And because we were Westerners and we had the currency in the jail was, uh, was uh, cigarettes and soap. And so we had a lawyer coming in every day and we could get cigarettes and soap. So we had money, we had currency. And so we were protected uh, because they'd obviously worked out that it would be bad news if anything happened to these guys, plus they can help us. Maybe they can get us a lawyer or get messages out and stuff. And so we were pretty well looked after, but it was, I mean, we're in a cell for a hundred with a hundred plus people, but uh, it had been built for like, it was a colonial prison and you could see the, the, the marks on the wall where the bunks had been. There were like 20 bunks. So it was a cell for 20. They'd ripped out the bunks and we were all just sleeping on the floor and, um, you know, it was pretty unsanitary and, you know, I mean, I didn't, we didn't think about it at the time, but the biggest risk was disease. And, um, Julian, uh, Julian had teased me actually in the prison, in the police cell, because I'd been bitten all over my body by mosquitoes and he hadn't been bitten at all. But when we got into the, into the prison, he had all these little bites on his like stomach and I didn't have any. They look like fleas or something, but he ended up getting typhus and scabies and I didn't get anything. <laughs> so Lucky, yeah. I was very fortunate. I don't know uh, why that was. And then we were, eventually we were, we were taken to court. Like we were put on trial and uh, luckily the, my notebook was completely indecipherable. So I had these scrawled notes and they it was my own version of shorthand, but they took it off to be analyzed and they couldn't work anything out. They couldn't work any of the writing out. Uh, Julian you purposely, t- was that purposely? No, done? no, I just have bad writing, you know? <laughs> but I mean, usually it's at least, le- I mean, my writing is not good and I keep a journal, but it's it would be legible. You'd be able to figure it out. I mean. I could figure it out. I mean, it was my own version of shorthand. Got it, uh, okay. But I guess, you know, uh, they said they they couldn't decipher they couldn't decide they couldn't prove that I was a reporter from this notebook, um, and they couldn't prove Julian was a photographer because he didn't have any pictures loaded in his camera. The pictures on my camera were pictures of you know lions and hippos, and so we Perfect. were we were acquitted um, and deported. And you know the reason why it's good that Julian and I got along well was because we were chained together for most of the time. Wow! Either handcuffed together. Or we had uh, leg irons. Um, I mean, that's something that they do like on a challenge to see, could you stay with someone for 24 hours? And for you guys, nearly two weeks, right? Yeah. And Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we, I mean, it was starting to wear thin after two. I mean, we didn't know we were going to get released <laughs> after two weeks. So on day like 13, 14, we're getting like, this is beyond a joke. And we, and we were facing potentially, if we'd been found guilty, four years in prison. Which, you know, it's not getting your head chopped off, but it's no joke. 
And so we were starting to get like, okay, joke's over, guys. You know, we want to we want to go now. Um, but luckily, you know, we we got along uh, really well, and so we spent a lot of time talking about you know you're in, you're in prison, you're just talking about your life, and uh, yeah. I was forty and single and sort of unattached at that point. Julian had just separated from his wife; he was five or six years older, and he was sort of saying, "Oh God, you know, I'm stuck in this prison cell in Africa, you know, and my life is a mess." And I was like, "Well, at least you have a life, you know. I don't have a life, you know." And so we had we had all that sort of uh, banter sort of going on, and then you know, I get really pissed off about certain things. And he'd be just like, calm down. And then he'd get pissed off about something. I'd be like, just, it doesn't matter, Julian, forget it. And you know, so so we kind of played off each other pr- pretty well. Did, did it make you rethink being a journalist in these kinds of areas? Because the truth is, just as someone who's worked with journalists, someone who has a degree in radio, uh, the, the truth is the people who get paid the most in journalism are the, the people who do these really easy, sensational stories about this is what this celebrity is doing this week. It's not the people on the ground doing great investigative pieces in, in foreign countries. Um, did you have the attitude of like, forget this, I can just do something a hell of a lot easier and probably make a better income? No. I mean, frankly, it was a great, you know, overall, it was a great experience. You know, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I, I told you about sort of my childhood and sort of, you know, yearning to join the military and be in combat. And, you know, I grew up reading stories about Victoria Cross winners and, you know, the equivalent of the Medal of Honor in, in Britain. And so it was it was exciting. And it was like living on the edge. And it was it was adventure. And it was testing myself. It was like, I've sub- I can survive in an African prison. You know, I can, I can, I can get through that. I can, um, you know, I can keep calm i can think logically i can you know i i feel like i've come through the test and at the same time though i did and this kind of flowed from my conversations with julian and you know the the whole my life is a mess well at least you have a life type of conversation i did sort of think this is getting a bit crazy because i spent i'd be based in the middle east in jerusalem uh going in and out of iraq uh it was very dangerous and it was more risk for less reward at that point because the story was there wasn't the appetite for the story wasn't as great as it had been before, but the risks were much greater. And then there was, and then I was, you know, I was doing this. I was then based in London, doing this job, flying different places like every week or every two weeks. So I could never plan anything, um, or I'd have to cancel things. And again, I was forty and single, and so it did make me think like. I need, you know, I definitely want to keep doing this stuff, but I can't just live this uh, this rootless sort of unbound life. So I think it did lead to me, you know, I then got, I got married then the following year. And I think all that, that experience in Zimbabwe did sort of play, you know, into my kind of psyche. But at the same time, it gave me, it, it, it in some ways it only increased my appetite for doing that kind of reporting and, and, and war zone reporting because I felt that uh, as I said I've been tested and I could actually do it pretty well. Yeah, I, I think it sounds like if you have the appetite to do that and and that's what you're 
passionate about, you're going to keep pursuing it. And uh, it's the cliche of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Definitely. Yeah. It's a cliche for a reason. People uh, hear it time and again, after you've been through a Zimbabwe prison, what what worse could you do to me? So yeah, that's an amazing story. Uh, with, with that, I do want to get into the book itself once again, First first Casualty. And as you were telling me before, um, this week, the week that we're recording this and the week it'll be up marks the 20th anniversary of the recognized funeral of uh, CIA officer and Marine Mike Spann, who was the first American killed in combat in the Afghanistan invasion. And that's a lot of what your book is all about. Um, so let's let's get into Mike Spann and, and sure. why he is such an important figure beyond being the first person to make that ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, well, so... Yes, yeah, so the book essentially is about Team Alpha, which is an eight-man CIA team, four paramilitaries, two case officers, uh, a medic, uh, and a Green Beret, serving Green Beret captain, who were the first Americans behind enemy lines after 9-11. And Mike Spam was one of the, the, those paramilitary officers, and as you say, former Marine Corps officer. Although you're never supposed to say former Marine, are you? Yeah, we said so, you know, so, retired Marine. <laughs> well, I, can't, I don't know. We say all the things all the time you're not supposed to say. I like know, we have Dale Comstock on and we say Delta Force, and you're apparently not supposed oh, to say special that. Mission but, unit. Yeah. yeah, we all know what we're, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Med- yeah. Medal of Honor, you can never say, but I think, you know, this, this makes sense to me. You know, the Medal of Honor, you never say Medal of Honor uh, winner. You have to say recipient, recipient. or awarded. And I think there's very good reasons for that. So I actually am trying to be very careful about terminology because I, you know, I want to be accurate and I know that it matters sure. to people for good reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was, uh, in Washington DC on nine 11, uh, and I, you know, vividly obviously, you know, changed my life in, uh, as it did with, with, with so many people, as it certainly did for Mike Spann and, and, and people just to get in back for the listeners, why were you in DC? Oh, so I was, uh, th- I was there for the daily telegraph. I've been, I've been posted there, um, uh, as the like Washington bureau chief for the uh, for the Daily Telegraph, so I was covering U.S. politics and kind of having beat having spent four years as my my kind of real initiation in journalism was in Northern Ireland, and so covering terrorism and the military, but also politics. And then I got moved to this really it was very big promotion covering pure politics in Washington D.C. and it was. Uh, you know, it was kind of a little bit overawing because I'd covered this very small story. I mean, big in terms of the headlines, but, you know, Northern Ireland's a very small place with a limited number of players. And I'd become this sort of deep expert in this very sort of small part of the world. And, and then Washington, D.C., I'm covering like the whole world and essentially from the political capital of the world. And it was pure politics. And so I, I was thinking... You know, I don't know whether this, I mean, it's a great job and everything. Certainly not going to turn it down, but it's, I'm not sure it plays to all my strengths because, you know, it's just guys in suits and Capitol Hill and, you know, the White House and all that. It's not like combat and the military and real people doing real things. But then, you know, 9-11 came along and then all of a sudden the United States is, is at war and it's a war zone. And, And that night, you know, I went home, there's like, Humvees and National Guardsmen on the corners in, in Washington, D.C. So that had a really big effect on me. And, um, I, you know, I tried to get to Afghanistan immediately. No, stay stay in um, stay in Washington, D.C. But I covered the death of Mike Spann, you know, just a couple of little news stories. 
And I vividly remember Shannon Spann, his widow, uh, who was also a CIA officer, um, delivering the eulogy, you know, 20 years ago yesterday, which was December the 10th, 2001 at Arlington. And then everything just moved on because it was sort of anthrax and it was Iraq and, and, and all that. And it was, there was this sense of Afghanistan's over, but the Mike Spann and sort of who he was and the, you know, this guy from, the, from Alabama, you know, he's 32 years old, um, very sort of, I mean, to me, he seemed, and more and more as I got to sort of research and into him and learn more about him, it was sort of the personification of, of America after 9-11, you know, with us or against us, sort of black and white moral clarity. And he was the classic, like, send me, you know. You know, he, he was evacuated from CIA quarters on 9-11, and he was furious because he was like, we're the CIA. We don't go home. We do stuff. And so he was very much you know, a guy who did stuff and he had two daughters uh, on 9-11. His, su- his son was three months old. He was newly remarried. Uh, his first wife was very sick with what turned out to be terminal cancer. He had every reason to uh, to remain in, in the US. And he not only was content with going, he wanted to go. He kind of fought to get on Team Alpha and to go. And so, um, you know, that never left me. And in Iraq, around about 2004, somebody said, have you ever seen the footage of that CIA officer, you know, running for his life after Mike Spam was killed? And I hadn't. And I watched it. And it was a guy called David Tyson, who was uh, an Uzbek linguist and CIA case officer based in Tashkent, um, who had been with Mike in the Fort Kalajangi on November 25th, 2001, when there was a prisoner uprising. Mike was killed in the uh, first few seconds, you know, he he fought these Al-Qaeda prisoners with his Kalashnikov and with his uh, Glock pistol, but he was just overwhelmed, disappeared under a pile of bodies. David ran over, ki- killed the guys who were on top of Mike, couldn't get any response from Mike, so kicking him, no movement, blood on the ground. And then David had to sort of fight his way out and killed a lot of guys uh, getting out. I mean, he had no, no other option. It was sort of kill or be killed. Um and I remember seeing this video footage of David and these like that talk about the thousand yards there, you know, just could I just remember thinking like, what has he, what's he going through at this moment? He's just seen his comrade Mike Spann killed. He's just killed all these Al Qaeda guys. He's now bumped into a German television crew holed up in this building. Um, he's still trapped inside the fort. Um, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be calling in airstrikes. He doesn't know whether the whole fort's going to be overrun. And so I became fascinated with him, eventually connected with him in 2013, but he was still serving in CIA, couldn't really talk. But then fast forward to the end of 2019, uh, he retired early 2020. And so he was like, I've retired, I'm, I'm ready to talk. And so, I, you know, it built out from there. You know, the focus was, was Mike, Um and David was very kind of insistent on it. He's like, I don't want this to be a book about me. You know, it has to be about yeah. Mike. It has to be about Team Alpha. And um, and so it just sort of built out from from David to the other. I ended up speaking to all six surviving members of, of Team Alpha. Also, many Green Berets uh, who were involved, the famous horse soldiers from ODA 595. Mark Mitchell, who was awarded a Distinguished Service Cross, the first since Vietnam, who led the rescue force 
into the fort that um, uh, you know and helped quell the uprising on the first day of what ended up as a six-day battle. Um, but yeah, I was able through you know from talking to his uh, comrades and. You know, I also was able to get sort of access to various bits of sort of documentation. I spoke to his parents. I spoke to Shannon Spann, his widow, build up this picture of this great American, you know, of this. And we, you know, we talk, certainly Mike Spann was the epitome of there is no such thing as a former Marine. I mean, he, he very much identified as a Marine, uh, even though he had left the Corps and was a a CIA uh, paramilitary um but he he wanted to be at the very tip of the spear and yeah. and he was and so he became on november 25th uh not only the, the first casualty in combat but he you know he was one of the first two americans to sort of question members of al-qaeda after 9-11 and you know one of the one of those was john walker he didn't know it mike didn't know it at the time but it was john walker lind the so-called american taliban um, you know, a white kid from yeah. 20-year-old guy from California. And um, and Mike, actually, you know, he had all the right instincts. He was honing in on Lind, like, because he was like, you know, you're a white guy. You know, what are you doing here? You know, I know you speak English. Lind didn't say anything, but, but Mike went to him along with David as well, you know, again and again, like, who are you? And um, he, another prisoner had told Mike that... Um, that Lind was an Irishman and that actually was Lind's kind of cover. He had an Irish grandmother and Al Qaeda had told him he trained at the Al Farouk camp and had told him to not, uh, not reveal even to fellow Al Qaeda and Taliban that he was an American. And so that, uh, so he was sort of passing himself off as an Irishman. Uh, but in fact, uh, he was an, uh, he was an American. American. And so, yeah, so I just built up, built the story story out from there. I guess with David and Mike Span at the center, and then Team Alpha, and the incredible story of these eight guys just being taken in to the mountains south of Masri Sharif in Black Hawks at the dead of night, um, not knowing what they were going to face, and uh, you know helping the Afghan resistance um, uh, defeat the Taliban and uh, recapture Masri Sharif. And then, of course, you know the events of the of the fort unfolding, and and Mike, you know, tragically, you know, becoming the seventy ninth star on the CIA memorial wall. Yeah. Now, now one hundred thirty seven, and the first casualty in in combat after nine eleven. The the interesting thing about this book is, I think, if people read it and take themselves back to that time period, two thousand one, in America. It was a very different attitude in the country about Afghanistan because the attack had just happened and and there was almost like unanimous support that we need to go in there. We need to take out whoever was responsible for these attacks. And it was long before things that you've criticized, which we can get into, but long before we heard these terms like nation building and building hearts and minds and, and regime change. It wasn't about that at that time. Um, and it was long before the tides changed and the opinion changed about us being in there long term. That's absolutely right. And so I remember this vividly at the time. I remember also thinking, this is not going to last. But Bush in this period, in I think October 2001, his approval rating was 90%. Um, in late September, early October, I can't remember exactly the date, 
but the authorization of for, uh, force was passed by Congress with only one person, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, voting it, voting against. So everybody was behind it. Like the United Nations was behind it. NATO was behind it. And as a country, it was, you know, we were sort of absolutely unified. And, you know, now it feels like we are absolutely divided. You know, this is pre-social media. Yeah. And so, you know, we're absolutely divided into sort of two tribes. I think hopefully it's not as, we're not as starkly divided as, as, as it seems sometimes, but, but, you know, certainly we've, we've, um, we've lost that sense of, uh, of unity we had then. And I wanted to, I wanted to capture that in the book. That, that and, that, and I should say, even in Britain too, this is pre-Brexit, pre- oh, yeah. you know, of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, it feels like the whole world, um, and, you know, so I wanted to capture that. And yes, in terms of the mission, you're exactly right. So, I mean, this mission was hundreds of Americans, not 100,000 plus. And w- I don't think there was an invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. I mean, there was bombing that began, uh, you know, on relatively limited targets because the Taliban didn't have much infrastructure. That began on October the 7th. There was a CIA team in the Panjshir Valley in sort of, you know, uh, uh, Northern Alliance controlled territory, so sort of somewhat of a safe zone. They were in on uh, September 26th. Um, Team Alpha were in on uh, October the 17th. Three days later, the Green Berets of ODA 595 came to came to join them. And this was this was like OSS SOE stuff. You know, very small numbers of Americans working deep behind American uh, behind uh, enemy lines. Uh, working alongside the indigenous um, allies who were the resistance to the foreign invaders who were the Arabs of Al-Qaeda. So, and, and it was successful, you know, and it was an Afghan fight. So, you know, the awesome might of U.S. air power was certainly the, the, uh, the factor that decisively changed the military equation. But on the ground, the bulk of the fighting was done by the Afghans, um, and you know the Battle of Kalajangi. You know it would not have lasted six days if the Americans had been in control. But there was this sense of like it's an Af- it's a this is an Afghan deal. You know we need to sort of step back. It's it's not perfect, but you know it's like Lawrence of Arabia's dictum. You know better they do it imperfectly than than we do it perfectly for them. To uh, paraphrase, and that was successful. The Taliban regime was overthrown. We didn't capture bin Laden, but, you know, Al-Qaeda was essentially expelled mostly and on the run. And then early December 2001, it's, it was, the tragedy of it is I feel that the the very success that Team Alpha and the other CIA teams and the Green Berets and the Air Force Combat Controllers had achieved led to a sort of, you know, degree of hubris, um, arrogance, over optimism, whatever you want to call it, amongst the policymakers, and they're like, "Well, this is easy. We can change regimes. Let's go do Iraq next. Um, democracy can flower wherever we plant the seeds. So let's have a centralized, you know, democracy nation state in Afghanistan. Let's, you know, let's shoot for the moon." And so, rather than s- sticking with those sort of limited um, principles that we'd applied in the fall of two thousand and one. It became this whole other thing, which, of course, is a completely 
uh, different story. So I wanted to capture that because it, you know, I mean, obviously the, I'd written the book, the book had gone to press uh, two or three months before the collapse in August. Yeah. Um, but I knew a collapse was on the cards because I was this time just over a, a year ago, this time last year, I was, um, I was in Afghanistan and I could, you know, the Taliban controlled, you know, most of the areas outside the cities and it was just felt like the end of days. Um, but I wanted to, so, and I knew the troops were going to be withdrawn. Um, at that point, the deadline was September the 11th. So I knew that in terms of American presence for now, it was going to be over. And so I really wanted to capture this period where it actually worked because I think in a lot of the news coverage, it was just, you know, I mean, you know, it was 20 years ago. So a lot of journalists yeah. were, you know, kids um, when 9-11 happened. And I, I think, you know, a lot of reporters and a lot of Americans just didn't, realized that we actually had a winning formula now whether that could have endured and you know there are lots of questions about it and i don't want to be simplistic and i don't want to just apply hindsight and be one of those guys sitting around in northern virginia you know saying oh if only they'd listen to me or you know they just need to do this you know it's a difficult country and and this whole book actually although it was a period of success i think the indications of how complex and difficult this place is to operate in that that comes through. But I wanted to at least capture um, the sense that um, yeah, a couple of you know the unity of the country and of, of the mission, and also the success with fairly you know li- limited um, resources and uh, and a, a sort of a, a, a limited kind of modest plan of assistance rather than taking over this whole country and doing it all for ourselves. I wanted to capture that. Yeah. And as you said, although you're not someone who's trying to say, I have the answers for how this all should have been handled, you have written pieces about what went wrong. And you did write uh, write this piece in the Wall Street Journal, which uh, I, I wrote down over here from August 3rd, two weeks before the invasion, of uh, before the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You wrote the U.S. won before losing Afghanistan. Um, and you argued against basically withdrawal, which was the one that we saw. So yeah. I, I'd like to get into that. Do you think we, because I, I, I don't, do you think there should have been a long term presence there forever? Do you think that we had, we should have withdrawn most people, not all? I mean, I, because I, I think people do value your opinion on this. Yeah. Someone who did all the research you did for this book. Yeah. And also, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to uh, people like David Tyson. Uh, and you know who was um, CIA case officer and a, a real expert on Central Asia and uh, and Afghanistan, and also J.R. Seeger, who was the chief of Team Alpha, uh, who was a Near East Division case officer, a diary speaker who'd worked with the Mujahideen out of CIA's Islamabad station in the 1980s. These are people who know a lot of stuff. You know, I know a lot of people and have thought about these things very deeply. And, you know, many others, Kofa Black, from the, who was the director of the Counterterrorism Center, and George Tenet, who was the CIA director, and Hank Crumpton, who ran the war day-to-day, you know, interviewed and sort of spoken at length to all these people. And so I believe it was, yes, I mean, clearly the, the manner of the with, with, withdrawal was catastrophic. It was horrendously mismanaged. I'm sure there'll be um, books written about it, and there'll be 
so there should be congressional investigations and we should you know not to find scapegoats but to prevent us ever doing this again you know having obviously done it in in 1975 in vietnam um but i think aside from the manner of the withdrawal which i think it's sort of incontestable that it was very badly done and closing bagram in the way that we did and and just basically pulling the rug from under the feet of the afghan allies and just saying like we're off you know you just carry on fighting but you know you've got none of the air power the infrastructure the advice you know we just went from you know helping them to not helping them with no sort of transition period so you know that was all terrible but but i also think that we should have had some kind of residual force in the country and we we should have um you know returned which in some senses we already had because you know american combat casualties were you know had, were a, a trickle um i mean the afghans were taking most of the, the casualties um in fighting the taliban um but if we'd you know i don't know how many how many troops but three and a half thousand or like a, a small residual force of advisors of people who just as team alpha and the other cia teams and the green berets did in 2001 could work alongside the afghans and you know help prop them up help the help the government give the government a kind of a lifeline for survival because now i mean that government's gone and um you know as i say I, you know i know what american public opinion was i know that trump and biden essentially agreed we just need to get every, you know every, everybody out um but sometimes um you know you can do things politicians you know if they if they have the sort of moral courage can do things that public opinion is is not completely behind and i mean you know i don't want to get too political about this but the surge uh, in iraq in 2006 7 with the bush administration no one was in favor of that uh, but we did it the bush administration went for it and it's and it succeed you know it succeeded um so you know uh i can understand the political difficulties i can understand the war weariness and but it seems like you know again and again we pulled out of iraq and then went back in because isis had just you know had grown up in the vacuum that that we'd left and so it seems we there's this sort of american sense of we can end wars we say when it ends but you know of course the enemy has a vote and you know when you're you know we're now back in the sort of period of the 1990s where we have this you know repressive taliban regime al-qaeda is there isis-k is there and we have no americans on the ground so you know i mean in the 90s that led to 9-11 so yeah so so leaving vacuums and you know withdrawing troops and saying the war's over i don't know i mean it's uh that could be the start of a very sort of treacherous path yeah, a, a lot of people seem to be in agreement with you. Absolutely. A lot of guys that we've had on the show, people who have served there, uh, seem to have the same perspective. So so with this book, I, you know, wrapping things up here, I, I do want to ask you, this is so many years in the making, really, when you think about it, as someone, as you were saying, who was there in 2001 in D.C. covering the conflict and continuing to do research on these guys who were originally there. 
it's really, this is pretty much a 20 year of research book that put this together. What, what's the main thing that you want people to get out of this when, when they pick it up and, and that you want them to remember? So I think, you know, these are sort of in some, some ways sort of depressing times, you know, with Afghanistan, you know, with Afghanistan. And uh, I know the members of Team Alpha, you know, the emotions range from sort of mourning to sadness to anger and, you know, everything in between. And, you know, I currently have a, the guy who was my Afghan translator just over a year ago is now living me, with me in my, in my house. You know, we, oh, wow. we were able to get him out. In you fact, could have had him on the podcast for them. Right. Cool. <laughs> Actually, the That's kebab awesome. I was, the kebab I was eating just before uh, the show started, he just passed me. He just given me that, so he's a good cook. Um, but uh, so these so these guys from the team and others, Shannon Spans, deeply involved in this. They are channeling all their sort of energies and emotions into helping the Afghan allies. Uh, get out and that's a very sort of positive thing and so I think what I would I think the big takeaway for me is is this is what Americans can do this is what human beings can do in this case Americans although there are also British special forces in there the SBS that did amazing things uh, and and stepped up and ran towards the sound of gunfire you know when the moment demanded it but this shows what we as a country, when we're unified, and what small numbers of Americans can do when they sort of band together and put their minds to it. And it's incredible and it's inspiring. And I do think there's a, you know, to sort of, you know, end on uh, a somewhat optimistic note, you know, the country is very divided. As you said, the world is, is, is very divided. Everyone seems to be just screaming at each other and canceling each other and, you know, trying to sort of school each other. Um, but on the Afghan issue, in terms of the Afghan allies, I've seen actually the country um, sort of pulling together somewhat. I mean, I guess there are people on the extreme right and the extreme left that uh, are kind of like, they don't care about Af- Afghan allies um, and they'll just cut these people loose or, you know, but generally speaking, I would think that eighty percent of the country is kind of like, yeah, we should we should help these people, and the, and you know, in the vacuum left by the government, uh, there are former military, former intelligence, you know, other parts of the government, and just you know, people of goodwill and people who get things done, who are who are banding to get to get together and getting people like my translator out of the country, you know, donating money, clothes, food you know, setting up flights, you know, underground railroad networks in, in Afghanistan, you know, support networks in the United States. And to me, that's the sort of spirit of, of Team Alpha and other Americans who stepped up after 9-11. And so I think that's the thing. that That's, in a way, the lasting big picture thing that researching the book um, has left me with. And I hope that that will be a sort of a, one of the takeaways um, from readers of the book. Yeah, that's well said. And I think that people have such an interest right now with what went wrong in Afghanistan, researching the history from the very beginning and, and really digging into, okay, how things could have been handled or should have been handled. And in, in your case with your book, how things went off successfully early on. 
Yeah, yeah. And also, I just wanted to... So, you know, I'm a journalist by profession. You know, I've covered politics for whatever, more years than I should have, 25 years or whatever. Um, But at the end of the day, I, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of realized this about myself. I don't really care what happens in the Situation Group or even the Oval Office. I don't care about the interagency process. I don't really care about how the presidential daily brief was delivered. What I care about is sort of real people doing things sort of on the ground and real stories. And so this is a, you know, it's a narrative, you know, try to write it in a way like a sort of a movie script. And obviously, you know, you hope that it is is written that way. Yeah. Yeah. You're with scenes and, and characters and a sort of a narrative arc, you know, it certainly has the context of 9-11, the context of Afghanistan and this, this sort of very important period in history. Um, but you know, at its core, it's a story of, of a fascinating story of, of real people. And so that's, that's, that's what I wanted to do as well. That's awesome. Is the, is the book available on uh, Audible? Did you do the audio book? I didn't do it. So a guy called Dan Warren, um, in LA did the, did the audible version and he was fantastic. And it's got some really good reviews on Audible. And I had a previous book that was done by somebody, which I think the the narration was not great. Uh, but this is this is really excellent, and so far better than my voice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect because I was going to say with uh, our listeners, we have a partnership with Audible. So if they go to battlelinepodcast.com slash Audible and then check out your book, First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11 with their free trial, they could actually check this out for free. Or, of course, if you oh, know, right. I, I like to get the hard copy of a lot of these books, and, and you could pick those up uh, anywhere books are sold, Amazon, elsewhere. Uh, so once again, First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11 by Toby Harnden. Uh, at Toby Harnden on Twitter, at Toby Harnden 1 on Instagram. This has been fascinating. It's been great. And I think that you doing these interviews and you putting out this book is going to make people not just know about the guys from Team Alpha, but remember the memory of a guy like Mike Spann yeah. and what it means to really serve your country, what it means to make the ultimate sacrifice. And I can tell you with our audience, these are the stories they, they love hearing. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thanks very much, Ian. And uh, I hope Chris gets better soon. Yeah, um, yeah, of course. But uh, I really pre- next week. It's been a few weeks with Adam, so yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I really appreciate uh, being on. I've listened to some of the other episodes and really enjoyed them. And uh, yeah, I had noticed that Audible uh, uh, sponsorship you have, which is excellent. Yeah, they're great. And, and I think especially with this audience who loves podcasts, there's a lot of guys on the road, a lot of truckers. Yeah. They might not get the opportunity to pick up the book. So it gives everybody an opportunity to, if they're driving hours in a car, listen to this. Yeah. And I'm try- and so on Instagram, it's it's funny how you, you know, you shift from platforms. Yeah. Twitter, I can't stand it. Yeah. But, uh, and so I've moved very much, away. you know, I still put out stuff, but I certainly don't like to get involved in any engagement or certainly arguments on twitter but instagram is instagram is great and i have i have like hundreds if not thousands of photos from this period and so you guys want to see that's the thing about toby's instagram because i've seen it is not selfies of you it is documentation of of the work you've done with photograph after photograph yeah and so i'm trying to push out like kind of supplementary materials really 
to do with the principally to do with the book. Yeah, there's you know I used to do dog photos and photos of my breakfast and stuff, but well, I'm done with that. <laughs> who, who cares about that? Um, but yeah, so I'm you know pushing out all the time photos of the team of the Green Berets of of the Afghans to just, just as sort of supplementary materials for the book because um, you know these great sort of historic images, you know. Um, almost all of which have never been published before. Yeah, I agree. I'll only do photos of uh, of me, you know, my food or something if I'm out at like a really great sushi place or something. And I got to say, like, this is amazing. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, you, can't, I, I can't overdo probably. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you sort of, I feel like you have these followers who follow you for a particular reason. And, there's, yeah. and they give you a little bit of wiggle room. Uh, and so, yeah, you can put out a photo of your, <laughs> your dog or... Like, your, this is not what I'm here for. Right, but you can do it very occasionally, yeah. And if you start, if you start like, you know, uh, pushing the envelope too much on that, you'll, you'll, you'll lose people. Yeah, social media right now is so weird in terms of the whole algorithms and everything. And I really try not to get too hung up on it. No matter who you are, we're spending way too much time in front of a screen uh, at all times, especially with yeah. you, it's like you're a journalist, so you're doing your writing in front of a screen. Uh, then you're promoting on Instagram, on Twitter. You're doing an interview with me. It's it's it, it becomes a little bit too much. But yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of it, and I do notice certain things are are not being um, as easy to to find if you're not already a follower, you know, and, yeah. and things are not coming up in the feed. Like I even noticed with us, we have Fort Scott Munitions as a sponsor, and and we'll get posts taken down. Of for ammo because we work with an ammo company and they think we're like illegally selling guns on Instagram, which we're of course not doing. But yeah, I had a post taken a down. Time. I had a post taken down, taken down because it described David Tyson killed killing Al Qaeda fighters. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it was an algorithm, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of frustrating. Yeah, I, I remember when I worked with uh, actually like Jack Murphy, who we were just talking about mm. when we worked for the same company, like there were published photos, historical photos of, uh, of of like U.S. troops or British troops taking down Nazi paraphernalia in Nazi Germany. And that stuff got taken down by algorithm because it is the swastika on it. Yeah. So it, it's to the point where we're erasing history. Right. I know and people do these workarounds. I guess a bit like the the spam you get from Viagra and stuff. You know, they start putting asterisks and at signs in the yes. in the word, and and so I notice people doing that. But it's kind of it feels kind of sad if you have to do that, really. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, all I could say to people is, you know, be aware of it, but to not not get too hung up on it. I think people get obsessed with it, and uh, yeah, and also spend less of your time on there and more of your time reading great books like first casualty because we still do have that freedom to to read that stuff and and to actually get your news from the sources and your research from the sources of guys that you've interviewed in depth as opposed to learning everything from memes and and videos out of context because that's a real problem in today's society yeah i mean yes i mean i struggle with all these things myself i think you know the 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 opportunities for distraction when you need to put your head down and read something or write something, very, very many of them. And I guess each of us is only uh, human. Um, but one of the things I love about podcasts is how deep they go yeah. and also how, uh, you know, even, you know, people have their political opinions and some podcasts are very political, but generally speaking in talking about this book, um, there's been 
very little politics. It's the opposite of the sort of cheap, you know, partisanship or, you know, oh, you said something stupid and you're an idiot, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so there is the material out there to sort of go deeper and be smarter rather than, you know, there's a lot of be dumber material out there. And so we each have to sort of try and, you know, work it out, you know, but, but, but I think like, you know, podcasts, um, and, uh, you know, audio books when you're, when you're driving and yeah, the images that are available on Instagram and in, in other places, that all the stuff's out there. And so if you can just try and focus on and using these great tools and these great outlets to sort of enhance your life rather than going down the other track. Uh, yeah. but it's, it's a hard thing. To, it's a hard thing to manage day to day for everybody, I think. I, I, I fully agree. That, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so, yeah, once again, guys, pick up the book. Anything else uh, before we wrap this up? This has been a fascinating discussion. And quite honestly, I learned a lot because I, I was uh, I'm, I'm trying to think here my exact age. I mean, I was in New York here in New York during 9-11. Um, but, yeah, 15 years old uh, when yeah. 9-11 happened. So there's a lot of stuff that, that was confusing to me that I didn't know, and I didn't know about these original missions. So I think people my age, right, 35 now, yeah. that, that they might want to pick this up and get a better perspective of, of what happened. So, yeah, yeah I don't know if great. there's anything else that we didn't cover that you want to make. No, that was great. Week. I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, thank you for reading the book, and, thank you know, thank you for your uh, thoughtful questions. And, uh, yeah, it's been great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Toby. All right. Cheers, Ian. Take care. That's all for this episode of the Battleline Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoparanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never, never quit. quit.